This week we celebrate our nation's birth, and I thought, well, it might be fun to do something a little bit different, give a slightly different perspective to why we celebrate and what we celebrate uh, as, as a nation. Uh, and so I've asked uh, David Crum to be with us today. Uh, David is a dear friend. Uh, he is former Marine and former Navy chaplain. Uh, even though I know once a Marine, always a Marine, and I think that's true, uh, but he's not serving in that capacity at the current time. Um, he is a colleague. He served in ministry here in this area and has retired back to the Bloomington area, uh, and so uh, we share that in, in common. He and his wife, Jill, are parents to 11 children, uh, one of which is my son-in-law, and the best thing I can say is that he is grandpa to two of my grandsons, Levi and Landon Crum, and so I'm, I'm grateful that he is here with us this morning. Maybe you have seen this picture before. It is in the National Archives. Uh, it is a picture. David is the one there who is uh, wounded and being attended to by the corpsman. It is one of the more famous pictures that comes out of the Vietnam-era conflict. And uh, David was wounded three times, uh, received three Purple Hearts during his tour of duty in uh, Vietnam. He was in the Tet Offensive. He was in the Battle of Way. Um, then he goes back afterwards <clears throat> in, it, in that tour of duty to become a Navy chaplain. I thought, you, you just need to hear part of his story. He's written a book about that experience called A Far Away Dream. Um, and uh, it's, it's a fascinating book. And uh, it gave me insight into what he experienced as well as what those of my generation experienced uh, in Vietnam. So... David, I'm grateful that you're here this morning. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to be with us. And so glad to be here, Tom. Well, good, good. So I'm, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions, and I want you to just help us understand why we need to be grateful for this nation and the sacrifices that were made, uh, the suffering that has been endured for us to be a nation. You know, that's the theme that James is going to address here in, in chapter 5. So... Here's, here's my first question. A lot of the uh, veterans that come back from their experiences cannot share what happened in those combat battle moments. You've been able to do that, uh, and it's made an impact on others' lives. How has that been possible, and, and why do you think that's a good thing? Well, as you mentioned, I became a Navy chaplain 12 years after leaving the Marine Corps. During that 12 years, I didn't talk about those experiences but when I became a chaplain, my first executive officer told me that I should tell my young Marines uh, what I had experienced. Um, so I started to do that. In my sermons, I would give illustrations of combat. And I discovered that that really opened the door for people to listen to the gospel. And I began to realize that uh, my experiences weren't just for me. Uh, these were for others to learn from, and really so that I could point them not to what it is to be some fantastic Marine, but what it is to be someone who trusts in the Lord. Um, I had learned early on that um, trusting in the Lord uh, was something I needed to, to do. I did it in boot camp. That's how I got through boot camp. That's definitely how I got through Vietnam. And so I wanted the Marines to learn that same lesson. And so I took his advice, and I told them about my experiences in Vietnam. After you were wounded the second time, and by the way, <clears throat> David was wounded on his 19th birthday the second time, shot twice, and you returned from your hospital stay, 
excuse me, what, what did you discover about your platoon and were you ever afraid of dying? Well, before I answer that question, could we go back to the first slide? Uh, are, are we able to do that? Guys, can we pull up that first picture? Yeah, there we go. So, yes, I'm the Marine being treated, but the one treating me is the corpsman, Dr. Dennis Howe. Uh, after the first service this morning, I spoke to a man named Larray, and Larray told me that his best friend became a Navy chaplain, and that friend of his died in Vietnam. Dennis did not die in Vietnam. As a matter of fact, this picture uh, appeared in Time magazine, and it was in an article about training for paramedics. And he was training after serving as a corpsman in Vietnam as a paramedic. So there's Dennis, but the men that you see behind me, um, they all died. That was the first time I was wounded. The second time was about a week later, and I had to leave way, and then I came back. And when I came back, none of those men were there. And I came back eager to come back because I wanted to serve along my fellow Marines. And I must say, although um, all the members of my team had died, and I had been wounded twice, and the possibility was great that I would be wounded again. I just never thought of dying. Uh, it didn't enter my mind. I didn't even think about being wounded. You might think I was such an idiot. Uh, <laughs> but I really believed that God was protecting my mind from those thoughts. As a matter of fact, I spent a couple of days in, a, in an aid station in in the city of Way, and a cousin of my wife uh, went to Way just a few days after the battle, and he told me he was just blown away when he walked into the aid station when he saw all the body bags that were just stacked. I never saw those body bags. I was there for two days, and I didn't see it. I, I was protected from seeing things and thinking things that allowed me to continue to function and to serve and to serve in a way that I knew I was honoring the Lord. You became a chaplain. What, what prompted that? And then how has this whole experience affected your faith? While I was still in Vietnam, uh, when we were out in the field after the Battle of Way. I can remember thinking, I'd, I'd love to come back here sometime as a missionary. Uh, well, I didn't do that, but instead, um, my father-in-law said to me, why don't you become uh, a chaplain? And so I'd finished seminary, and uh, I thought, what a good fit, uh, the military and ministry. Um, and so, yes, I, I became a chaplain, and, and then I saw, yes, I was able to identify with the men uh, they were able to identify with me, and I was able to really encourage them not only to be good Marines, but to be men of faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, and I often would tell them the story of uh, my, my friends dying for me and of Jesus' words, greater love has no man than this, 
than that a man laid down his life for his friends. They didn't intentionally die for me, and yet, as far as I was concerned, they had given their lives for me and for our country, and it was my responsibility to give my life, my entire life, the rest of my life, uh, for their sake and for my Lord's sake. David, thank you for um, serving our country. Thank you even more for serving our Lord. It's a joy to have you here this morning. Would you join me in saying thank you? Our brothers and sisters in Christ and other countries suffer persecution just because of their faith. They're suffering of illness, injury, betrayal, and loss, just to name a few. James says, be patient until the Lord's coming. Different translations say, strengthen your heart, don't give up, stand firm. But there's a suffering of pain so great, there are no words. And patience, <laughs> it's just not on the radar. It's not that you're impatient. I knew this suffering when my sister died by suicide. My prayers consisted of one word, God. I was never more aware or grateful for Romans 8:26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. When I couldn't pray, he prayed for me. He intercedes for us. The pain, indescribable, and the unbelievable weight of grief was so heavy. But praise God, because I knew he was with me even then. He gave me strength in my weakness, the mere effort to put one foot in front of another, the foggy brain that made it hard to think. He helped me through the pain, and I felt the prayers of others on my behalf. Does the pain go away? The intensity does, but I'll always miss her. Because I loved her. And it becomes a part of you as you become the person you move on to be. So hold on to him with both hands. Don't give up. Strengthen your heart. Stand firm in him. You're not alone. He will help you if you let him. In this next part of James, we're talking about patience in suffering. Suffering is as old as time itself. You know, when we get ready to celebrate uh, our nation's birth, I think we often forget the suffering that was endured during that time of the American Revolution. In the six years of the battle, the, the war itself, George Washington spent 14 days maximum at his home in Mount Vernon. Six years, made it back for 14 days. That was probably when he was on his way to Yorktown and on his way back from Yorktown that he stopped. I actually called Mount Vernon this week, spoke to George Washington's administrative assistant, just to confirm, <laughs> just to confirm that number. And, and the historian there did say, we don't know that it was that many, but at a max, he spent 14 days at Mount Vernon during six long years of the revolution. 
Of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, five were captured and executed for treason. Nine died fighting on the battlefield, and 12 lost everything they owned. The winters at Valley Forge and Morristown, New Jersey, were, were devastating times. More men died from starvation and disease than died in battle. We forget that entire colonial towns and communities were burned to the ground, that non-combative citizens were plundered and killed. The abuses against women and children were often unspeakable. The suffering endured during those six years of the Revolutionary War was immense, and it was nothing short of miraculous by God's divine intervention that we became a nation. And we seldom stopped to think of the price of our nation's freedom. You see, suffering goes in every facet of life. Watch the news and you'll see images from all across the world of people suffering. And the fact that there are some people who suffer just simply because they are followers of Jesus Christ continues to rise at an alarming rate. Not a week goes by, but what we learn of somebody here in this family who is suffering a loss, a, a major loss in their lives. It surrounds us all the time, always will, always has. And I cannot answer the questions of the whys about suffering. I can tell you this, not everything that happens to us is good in this broken world. I know that. But I also know this, God is good. And that's what James reminds us in chapter 1. In verse 17, he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. In other words, he's the same today as he's always been the giver of good gifts. The scriptures affirm over and over again that God is good. Nearly 700 times we have that confirmed in scripture. And Lee Strobel said God's ultimate answer to suffering isn't an explanation. It's the incarnation. When Jesus became one of us, he didn't take away our suffering. He merely participated in our suffering so that he could relate to our condition in every conceivable way and become our Savior. Now, in chapter 5, we find two different aspects of suffering. And sometimes people say they aren't connected, but I believe they are. In the first, James warns us against, well, creating suffering from other people. In the second one, he talks about our patience in suffering. So let's deal with the first one here. Don't be the cause of suffering. In, in verse 1, it says, Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you've failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. Boy, those are harsh words. What in the world is James talking about here? He's talking about suffering that sometimes we create. Whether we do it intentionally or unintentionally, we need to be wise. How do we understand this passage? Well, let me tell you how I think we are to understand it. Hetty Green 
was known as the Witch of Wall Street. When she died in 1916, she was considered the richest woman in the world, having amassed a fortune of $100 million, which 100 years ago, today's equivalent would be $2.5 billion. Her diet consisted mainly of dry oatmeal, onions, and cold eggs because she chose not to pay for fuel to heat her food. Her home was an unheated tenement in Manhattan. She wore the same dress for years, which originally had been black, but was faded into a dull brown with the passing of time. She had more money than she could spend in several lifetimes, but she was the generator of suffering in her family. She divorced her husband because in her mind he spent too much. Couldn't have been much given the way she lived. She sent her daughter to live in a Catholic convent because she knew her daughter's expenses would be paid by the nuns. And when her nine-year-old son Edward was injured in a wagon accident, she would only take him to the free clinics. Edward suffered dearly. Due to the poor care he received, his leg wound worsened and his leg had to be amputated. All of which could have been easily avoided if she had just taken some of her wealth and provided the right kind of care for him. She died incredibly wealthy, but alone and leaving suffering in her wake. That's what James is talking about here. The kind of person that is so, so infatuated with the wealth of this world and the things of this world, well, that they'll do anything and they'll step on anyone to make it happen. And here's the thing. James doesn't warn about wealth, but the attitude concerning wealth. It's not about the amount. It's about the spirit and the attitude. For instance, you can be as poor as Job's turkey and still be guilty of the wrong attitude about wealth. And James highlights some concerns, some casualties of this way of thinking. This is the suffering that will happen when this becomes the driving force in your life. This passage condemns hoarding. The ancient world measured wealth in three different ways, by the, the grain that you have amassed in your barns, by the clothes that you wear, and by the precious jewels or uh, gold and silver that you might own. And the thing is, James says, when you hoard it, you destroy it. Grain that's stored too long sours and rots. Clothes that you don't wear that are hung up and not used, why, the moths will eat those. And what good is silver and gold or jewels if you just store them away and don't use them? Not using them is the same as not having them. James says, don't hoard. It's the antithesis of faith. When God took care of the Israelites during the 40 years that they wandered in the wilderness, he gave them manna every day. But if they tried to keep it overnight, it rotted. God was trying to teach his people the lesson, don't hoard Trust me every day. Give us this day our daily bread. The passage also condemns cheating. When, when you cheat to have more, it does something to you. Did you know that Vincent Van Gogh, the famous artist, was one time a great evangelist for the, for the Christian faith and gave that all up? To become an artist, to hopefully there find beauty and meaning to life because he had witnessed too much cheating among Christians. Don't cheat. Treat others fairly. 
And this passage condemns self-indulgence. In Scripture, wealth is, to, is given to us, I believe, by God to be used as a tool to help others and to honor the Lord, not just for our own usage. I don't know how many of you have ever visited Hearst Castle. It was begun, construction was begun 100 years ago, 1919. It was the opulent summer home of the famous newspaper tycoon, William Randolph Hearst. And it is lavish beyond description. Now, I read just this week that they've opened up the most beautiful Neptune swimming pool. And four nights in July, you can actually swim in that pool. Now, there's a cost for this. First of all, you have to become a member of, uh, of the Hearst Castle, uh, thing, which was $500. And then to, to go swimming for just one evening will cost you $950. So roughly $1,500 to go swimming in the Neptune pool. I hope you don't go. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that uh, Mr. Hearst would be proud. That, that fits very much his character. He was a prime example of what James warns about. Hearst Castle is luxurious beyond description. But he had a payphone for his guests to use so he wouldn't have to pay their bill. You see, James warns against that kind of pathetic, self-indulgent, non-sharing attitude. Most of us are blessed with more than we need. And God wants us to use it as a blessing, not as a curse. And then James goes from that kind of suffering that we can create if we're not careful into a concept of don't give up during times of suffering, patience in suffering. And, and uh, in verse 7, this is what we read. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. By the way, farmers have had a tough year because of all the rain. It takes all kinds of patience. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. Author Joyce Meyer wrote, she said, God is good and what he does is good. So is it possible that suffering can ever be for our good? Once we are afflicted with suffering, is it possible that God might take a little longer to deliver us than we would like for him to because he intends to use the bad thing to work some good in us? I like the way John Piper put it. The soul would have no rainbow if the eye had no tears. I know I've learned more, gained more, grown more, become stronger in my faith through the tough times than perhaps the good times. And if those statements are true, and I believe they are, then, then how should we approach the tough times of suffering? Now, for you today, things might be really good, but I'm here to tell you that'll change. We live in a broken world. Everybody is going to experience suffering at some point in time. It may be of your own creation because of some of the choices that you made, or you may have nothing in common with it. It may just come upon you because that's life in a broken world. So when it happens, how do we handle it? 
Well, bless his heart, James gives us some very practical ways to do it. And the first one is, he says, be patient. Did you, did you notice when we went through that passage, it says, be patient and stand firm. How many of you have discovered the secret to patience? Let me see your hands if, you, if you've discovered the secret of patience. Okay, that's kind of what I figured. Uh, I have stopped praying for patience because God doesn't give it. He teaches it, and I do not like the lesson material, all right? <laughs> I've learned through the years that when you say, God, I want to be more patient, something always happens that, well, you're going to learn that. That's, that's tough stuff. When life is hard... Patience is nowhere to be found. When life is good, we're barely patient. But when life is bad, patience is nowhere to be found. It is when life is most trying and difficult that God is most sustaining and most fulfilling if we are patient. Research suggests the ability to delay gratification. In other words, to demonstrate patience is one of the best predictors of success in life. If you can be patient, you'll succeed. The farmer has to wait for the seasons to work their magic on the seed so the crop will be successful. What happens when a farmer can't wait until the crops mature and he harvests too soon? There's nothing in the harvest. Patience works for the farmer. God's timing is always perfect. Be patient. Here's something else. Be positive. Did you notice James says, don't grumble against each other. One need not look far to witness the pain caused by someone's negative attitude. Families are hurt. Employees are hurt. Volunteers lose their motivation. Spouses feel like giving up. It has been wisely put, when you help someone else up a hill, you get that much closer to the top yourself. I'm telling you, life is an uphill climb, and you are, and if you're like me, you long for the mountaintop experiences in life. But if you try to go there alone, you won't have anybody to share it with. So in your climb to get to the next mountaintop experience, take somebody with you. Uh, when, when you're helping somebody else get to the mountaintop, you'll get there faster. When you get behind somebody and push, It'll, it'll, it'll thrill your heart too because when you see them experience the victory or the joy or, or the vibrancy of those mountaintop moments in life, you'll experience it as well. A true encourager is one who gets behind and helps somebody make it to the mountaintop before he or she gets there. A true encourager is one who gets as excited about your arrival at the victory moment as if he or she had achieved the victory. Being an encourager does not require a certain skill set. It does not require a unique DNA. It does not require a college degree in encouragement. It does require that you do it. And by the way, this is not an option in the Christian life. Scripture commands us to be encouragers to one another. Anyone can be an encourager. Everyone should be an encourager. <clears throat> be persistent. We consider blessed those who have persevered, James writes. So don't give up. Keep at it. Persist through the tough times. The prophets of old did. Job did. You too will survive. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't take your defeats too seriously. Stay the course. God is full of compassion. 
Carl Lewis, who won the long jump gold medal in the 1996 Olympic Games, had been competing in track and field for 20 years before that moment. And he was asked what contributed to his longevity, and this is what he said. Remembering that you have both wins and losses along the way, don't take either one too seriously. Folks, don't, you know, don't get down on yourself when you drop the ball. Don't beat yourself up in those moments. But on the other hand, don't go overboard patting yourself on the back when you've done a good job. It's just stay the course. Be persistent through the ups and downs because the Christian life has the ups and downs, goods and the bads, successes and the failures. Be consistent. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, does that sound familiar from any place? James is borrowing from his older brother's Sermon on the Mount. That's where you've heard those words before, in the words of Jesus. Both of them say, don't, don't swear, don't take an oath, you know, uh, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean when you go into a courtroom, you shouldn't raise your hand and, and, and state, you know, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? No, that's not what, that, that's not what it's talking about. Oh, you mean then he's talking about bad language when, when you cuss and swear, well, I'm here to tell you, foul language never helps. David Keck wrote this. He said, profanity is the common crutch of the conversational cripple. It's pretty good stuff. I like that. But no, that's not what this passage is referring to. Jesus and James are teaching that our honesty and reputation should be so consistent and so dependable that we need no oath to support them. That your yes should just be that, yes. And your no should be just that, no. That people will know when you say what you do that it's trustworthy. Sometimes in this world, it's hard to be that honest and reputable. <laughs> Kansas State Senate Chaplain Fred Holloman some years ago opened a session of the Kansas State Senate with this prayer. Omniscient Father, help us to know who's telling the truth. One side tells us one thing and the other just the opposite. And if neither side is telling the truth, we'd like to know that too. And if each side is telling half the truth, then give us the wisdom to put the right halves together. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> well, I'm not sure how long he remained chaplain after that prayer. But can I tell you that message applies to every one of us. If you're going to get through the tough times, if you're going to get through life, you'll need to be honest and consistent in your reputation. So that when you say yes, people will know that's what it is. And when you say no, they'll know that's what it is. Last thing, be hopeful. James says, be patient until the Lord's coming. We have something to look forward to, something that will thrill our hope. This world is not the end product. The suffering in this world will someday give way to a place where there is no more death or suffering or tears or sorrow be patient until the Lord's coming. Trust him because he'll get you through. Hope is essential for our success in life here and our survival in life here and getting us through to life there. And hope, hope ties us together. Patience, faith, and hope are all connected. Patience tests and, and, and pushes and stretches our faith and our hope. But hope keeps us patient 
as we wait for his return. And no matter what your background, no matter what you've done, what you are, who you are, it is our hope in Jesus Christ that brings us all together as one. I don't know if you recognize the name of Grasshopper Liggett. That was his nickname, Richard Grasshopper Liggett. But he knew both sides of the suffering equation. He was convicted and imprisoned for murder. And in his imprisonment got cancer and died before his life imprisonment term was really had run its full course. But while he was incarcerated at Louisiana State Penitentiary, better known as Angola, he became a Christian and genuinely turned his life around. He took every Bible study course he could possibly get, did everything he could to help other people find Jesus Christ right there in the prison. He and Ruth and Billy Graham all shared something in common. Now, he died three months before Ruth Graham died in 2007 and 11 years before Billy Graham died passed away, but it was at Billy Graham's funeral that the connection became apparent. The casket in which Ruth Graham was buried and the casket in which Billy Graham was buried was made by Grasshopper Liggett. I, I find something endearing about that. What a picture. The great evangelist and the criminal, both sinners, shared this common hope. That no matter who you are or what you've done, God's grace and forgiveness outweighs all the suffering of this world. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.